Lord, you are so good. You're better to us than fully than we deserve. You've heaped grace upon grace uh, in our lives. You've given us your son. You are so very good to us, and we thank you. We praise you. We adore you for your goodness. Lord, we adore you for loving us in every way. You, you love us even when you correct us. And we're going to see with Nicodemus today that you're, you're working in his life, and because you love him, you want him to know the truth. And, and so, Lord, we, we pray that in those moments, we'll realize how much you love us as you're convicting us and changing us and making us more fully your people. Lord, as we come to these familiar words today, I pray that you'll open our eyes and you'll open our hearts, that we might not just hear your word, but we might be changed by it. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. I'm going to read from John chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 17. Remember, we, we talked last week about this encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus at night and, and how he was asking questions, and, and Jesus told him that, well, you must be born again, and he said, how can that be? Well, he's gonna, we're going to repeat some of that uh, today as Nicodemus continues to struggle, and Jesus uh, teaches the gospel to him, really. So we're partway through that struggle or that conversation at verse 9. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Pastor and author John MacArthur has written, over the last few centuries, lifespans have been extended, living conditions improved, and labor made safer and easier. Dreaded diseases that once were widespread, such as smallpox and polio and various plagues, have been controlled or eliminated. Mechanization, at least in developed countries, have taken a lot of the drudgery and the danger out of work. And some of the most labor-intensive tasks are now performed by machines. Of course, well, that causes a problem in and of itself, but... Uh, they're still unsolved problems, right? I mean, they still remain. 
There's still war and there's still poverty. There, there are new problems caused by, as I alluded to, the mechanization. And as we try to solve one problem, we create another. Yet, MacArthur continues, humanity's faith in progress remains largely unshaken. Many ardently believe that given enough time and enough science and enough technology, we will one day overcome all or at least most of humankind's problems. And it's true, humankind has solved a lot of problems. And the inventions and the technology of, of our lifetime alone is nothing short of amazing. But we've also caused many problems. Perhaps as many as we've solved, I don't know. And as MacArthur concludes, our most pressing problem remains forever beyond our ability to solve. And it's the problem that you and I have faced ever since the Garden of Eden and the fall of Adam and Eve. That all people, with no exception, are sinners before a holy God. We're broken. And we cannot fix ourselves. But Satan's very good at convincing you and I that, that either we don't need fixing, or if we do, we'll take care of it ourselves. Thank you very much. In other words, we think we can come to God on our own terms. And this false belief is the heart of every false religion. But the Bible is clear that you and I cannot save ourselves. As we saw last week, we must be born again. Humanly speaking, you and I are we're hopeless. Ephesians 2.1 describes us as being dead in trespasses and sins. 1 Corinthians 2.4 says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He's not able or she is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. You see, we're spiritually dead apart from Christ. We, we cannot accept and discern the things of the Spirit without Christ. Read through the New Testament, and you'll find that, i got to tell you that our description apart from Christ is not very flattering. We're referred to as enemies of God apart from Christ. That we're alienated from God. That we're disobedient to God. That we're ignorant of God. That we're hostile towards God. We need a radical transformation. And it's a transformation that you and I cannot accomplish on our own. And that's where the rebirth that we spoke about last week comes to play. God, by the Holy Spirit, imparts spiritual life to the spiritually dead. That's the good news. And maybe that's shocking to us. And it is until we accept the biblical truth. But it was even more shocking to Nicodemus. That's why he exclaimed in verse 9, How can this be? How can this be? The text doesn't explicitly say it, but I, I'm sure he struggled to accept that his pious religious practices weren't working. That they were not going to gain him 
admission into the kingdom. We, we don't know what his struggles, all of them may have been, but Jesus rebuked him for not understanding. Verses 10 to 12, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? And then he said, truly, truly, remember, he, this is a way of being emphatic. Truly, truly, I want you to listen up here, Nicodemus. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, well, then how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You see, Nicodemus was shocked at Jesus' teaching, but Jesus was shocked that Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, did not understand these things. And he said, verse 11, essentially, we know what we're talking about. And the we here refers to Jesus and the disciples and all who believe. We know what we're talking about. But Jesus insinuated, Nicodemus, you don't know what you're talking about. And you won't accept what we're telling you. And then Jesus rebuked Nicodemus further, verse 12. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, well, how are you going to believe if I tell you heavenly things? It, it seems that Jesus was referring to the rebirth as an earthly thing. And he's stating, Nicodemus, you can't even understand rebirth, so how are you going to understand more lofty things if I were to tell you those things and what might those loftier things be well we don't know what Jesus had in mind but he may have been thinking that that what he wanted to tell Nicodemus more about was that he wasn't just merely a rabbi like Nicodemus but he was the son of God but Nicodemus wasn't ready he couldn't handle that truth yet Whatever those heavenly things are, Nicodemus, Jesus is saying, look, Nicodemus, you won't be able to believe unless you're first born again, unless the Holy Spirit regenerates you and gives you new birth. And then Jesus gives his credentials for saying what he's saying in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is essentially saying, look, I have the credentials to speak about heavenly things because I'm the only one who has been to heaven and has descended and stands among you. So I know what I'm talking about. It's another way of saying, Nicodemus, listen up. I know what I'm talking about here. And then Jesus turns to an Old Testament illustration uh, to point to his sacrificial death. And it may be a little odd to you, it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. <laughs> Poor old Nicodemus. I mean, he hasn't understood anything thus far. He's still reeling from the thought of being born again. Because that means giving up the life he had known. That probably means giving up... He knows that means giving up that whole system of works righteousness. And now Jesus has talked about the Son of Man descending from heaven. And now, as if that wasn't enough, Jesus is going to hit him with punch number three, if you will, and uses an Old 
Testament illustration to point Nicodemus that, to say to Nicodemus, look, your salvation and everyone else's salvation does not depend on works. It depends on trusting in the completed work of Christ, of me on the cross. Now, now what's this business about Moses being lifted up and how does that connect to the cross? Well, the story is found in Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by way to the Red Sea. These, this is the Israelites. To go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They're talking about the manna. They've had enough of it. And, and then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses, and they said, We've sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. The heart of this story is God's promise that everyone who had been bitten by the fiery serpents needed only to look to the bronze serpent on the pole to be cured. There was nothing therapeutic or medicinal about this bronze serpent, but it was God's cure. It was God's grace being poured out upon those who had sinned. And Jesus is letting us know that this incident in Numbers prefigures or points ahead to his being raised up on the cross so that whoever believes in Jesus might have eternal life. You see, the Israelites couldn't trust on any remedy of their own. Their only hope was to trust in the remedy that God had given them. I mean, they could have tried medicine, but it wouldn't have worked. They could have tried to tell God, hey, look, God, you know, we're, we're going to turn over a new leaf. We're going to do better from here on. But God would have said, yeah, but what about those sins you've already committed? It wouldn't have worked. As Donald Gray Barnhouse states, they could have founded the Society for the Extermination of Fiery Serpents. And the Israelites could have become a, a life member for a mere $100, a sustaining member for $500, a contributing member for $100, and an annual member for $25. And that society would have killed a few snakes. But in the meantime, people would have still been bitten by snakes and they would have died. The point being, no works of their own would save them. They had to trust in God's solution. It was the only solution. They had to trust in God's grace. And the same was true for Nicodemus as it is for us. We've been bitten by sin as the Israelites have been bitten. We're dying of sin as the Israelites were dying. And the only cure for sin's sting, the only cure is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ 
upon the cross. Our only hope is to fall upon His grace. And why wouldn't we? Folks, why wouldn't we? Does it get any better than what Jesus said next in verses 16 and 17? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but He came that the world might be saved through Him. God loved, and He loves the world still. God loves us human beings who are utterly sinful, completely lost, and unable to save ourselves. Not everyone will be saved because not everyone will believe. This isn't a teaching on universalism. But the one and only solution for sin and for our salvation is to trust in Christ's love. That's the only solution. Some of you have surely heard this before. I think I've shared it before, but the great Swiss theologian, Karl Barth, was once asked, what's the greatest thought that has ever passed through your mind? And it's said that he debated a while, he thought for a while, he wanted to be very careful and clear about his answer. And then he said with childlike simplicity, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It doesn't get any better than that, folks, no matter how old you are. It really doesn't. Ephesians 2, 4, 5 tells us that God's love is great, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God's love is great. Because it's rich in mercy. It's a great, great love. God's love is also infinite. Uh, Heather shared that earlier with the, with the ball illustration. A little later on in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul prays that the Ephesians may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. What Paul is saying here is even as he's praying for the Ephesians to know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love, he's also saying, you know what? But ultimately it surpasses our knowledge. It's so infinite. It's so great that it surpasses knowledge. And then he says, it's so boundless. There is no end. You, you'll never fully fathom it. Yeah, you need to grasp it, but you'll never fully comprehend a love so great and so infinite. God's love is also an amazing giving love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. One of my girls is here today, and I wouldn't give her or her sister for anyone not even to save my sorry hide. But God so loved the world that He gave His Son. God loves you. Do you know that? Romans 5 eight. but God shows or demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died 
for us. This passage gets me every time. While we were messed up, while we were so broken, so broken we couldn't possibly save ourselves, while we were sinners, which means we were ultimately enemies of God, God sent His Son to die for you and for me. He didn't say, get your act together. He didn't say, kill all that sin in your life. He didn't say, turn over a new leaf and then I'll love you. No, while we were so very lost, God loved us and He sent His Son to die for you and for me. Wow. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. You know, as I said last week, if you've never trusted in God's great love, if you've never trusted in God's great mercy, if, if you've never felt that quickening of the Holy Spirit to be born again and He's working in you now, I pray that you would do so this very moment. If you still believe that, that somehow you're going to be saved by your own works righteousness, please give that up and fall on the mercy of God. Fall on the mercy of God. I pray that the Holy Spirit is regenerating your heart. I pray He's making you new so that you can trust God's great love. But here's what I'm convinced of this morning. I think many of us have already trusted in God's great love. And that's obviously wonderful. But I'm concerned that we've forgotten how great and how infinite and how wonderful and giving His love is. I'm convinced that if you and I would recapture that love, if you and I would begin to return to our first love, then our worship would be richer, our witness would be bolder, our love for others sweeter, our courage in times of trials stronger. Church, church, those who have accepted God's grace and mercy in Jesus. I want to urge you to do this this morning. See what love the Father has lavished upon you. That you should be called children of God. And that's exactly who you are. Don't forget that. See what love the Father has lavished upon you. That you and I, and those listening who have trusted in Christ, should be called children of God. Let's pray together. Lord, it's hard to believe the love you have lavished upon us. And we just want to thank you for loving us. We want to thank you for loving us while we were still sinners. Lord, we were so far from you when you drew us in. 
And so if there's one now who thinks they're too far away from you, I pray that you would draw them in. Lord, maybe they're listening now. Maybe they'll listen later this week and, and they just think they're too far gone. No way. Remind them that your love is so great, so infinite, so giving. And draw them to yourself. But Lord, many of us have trusted you. But maybe we've lost our first love. Maybe we've, we're taking for granted your great love in our lives. Lord, I, I just pray that we would lean more fully into you and into your love. Help us to fathom your great and infinite and giving love at a deeper level. Lord, help us to fathom it so that our worship would indeed be richer, our witness bolder, our love for others sweeter, our courage stronger. Help us to ponder your love and praise you for your love so that a deeper understanding of your love might begin to impact more and more all that we say and all that we do. To you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be all glory, praise, and honor today and forevermore. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you today and forevermore. Amen.